0: We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Guide and lead us as we look at this psalm and and show us what you would have us to know from all of this. And thank you in your son's name. Amen. Psalm 146. Praise you the Lord. Praise you the Lord, O my soul. While I live will I praise the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while I have any being. Put not your trust in the princes nor the son of man in whom there is no help. His breath comes forth. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is therein, which keeps truth forever, which executeth judgment for the oppressed, which gives food to the hungry. The Lord looses the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises them that are loved That are bowed down, and he loves the righteous. The Lord preserves the stranger, he relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, even your God, O Zion, unto all generations. Praise you the Lord! Praise you the Lord! Praise you the Lord, O my soul! And we've mentioned this before when God repeats himself, we need to pay attention. And here in the same verse, he repeats himself. And he's going to repeat himself all through this, but praise you the Lord, give boast, give honor to God. And I love this, you know, the idea of praising God, boasting, boasting about God. And you know, here it starts out with this beautiful, give boast to the Lord, pra- boast to the Lord, oh my soul, my innermost being, the seat of my emotions and this is what god is really desiring from us not just to say the words not just to act you know to pretend about it but right from the seat of our emotion from our soul the deepest part of us praising the lord and giving him the glory due to him and this is something that i love to see when people will praise god with all the righteousness on it not just playing a show not just acting and I've been in churches where people, you know, raise their hands and get all emotional. And, you know, and it's kind of funny when every single person in the church does it and you know that it's just part of what they're, what they're doing. And the, I remember the days when we used to sing songs with motions and everything. And, you know, automatically your hands went up at the right time. And then you clapped at the right time. And, you know, it was just you learned to do it and it was just part of the song. And that's not what this verse is talking about this verse is talking about praising him from the very innermost part of your being and it's just praise to him it's not mechanical it's not not planned it's just from deep down praising God look what God has done for me let me tell you about what God has done for me and it's what I really pray for our church to be able to get to you know where people will just share, this is what God did. Look what God did, and we come together, and it's it's not just catch up with the week, but let's really talk about what God has done, how He has blessed us, and it's wonderful to talk about how God has blessed. Now this has been a very rough weekend. It cost me a lot of money to, to you know this weekend, you know, for for all that's going on. But you know what? God is still in it. You know, number one, I had enough money saved to be able to pay for it barely. You know, and it costs a little bit more than that, but it is looking on what, what, what I was saving money now for is not there, so now I've got to start saving that money again. But it was there. Are we looking to praise God and honor God? And that is very important for us. How important is he? Because we will speak about what's important to us. And I've said this before. When you talk with somebody, you get a very quick feeling on what is important to them. Because, what do they talk about? Do we talk about God at least once in a while in our day? Or is He the last thing on our mind in most days? And, you know, I've met people that are so into sports, and you can tell what team what their favorite team is in their sport very quickly in their conversation. But it is hard sometimes because, you know, no matter how important God is to us, we can get wrapped up in our lives really easy. We can get wrapped up in our problems really easy. And then all of a sudden our problems become our focus and you know it's all it's all a big wrapped up area of our life But we can see what jesus said that from the abundance of our heart we speak so we look at what do i speak about the most and we as christians sometimes can make it sound like we're we're talking about god when we're really griping about other things you know let me tell you about all the problems in my life but god's going to take care of them and we spend more time talking about the problems in our life than we do the God who's taking care of them. And then later how he did it. Yeah. And so there's all these things that we do as we go forward. And the idea is, what is important? What do I spend my time doing? There's a there's statement that if you want to find out what's important to somebody, look at their checkbook. And there's the truth to that as well. What do they spend their money on? What percentage of their money goes to God? What percentage of their money goes to other things? Uh, what do they talk about? What do, they spend their, what do you spend your time in? And some of it we can only look at our own life and say, okay, God, if I have free time, what, what is it that I want to do? Now, we'd love to make everybody think, well, God, I spend all my time in prayer and I, and I read my Bible, but we know what we really do. We, we know what we, what we really do. We know how much time we spend in front of the TV. We know how much time we, we're sleeping and working and, and all of this. And God doesn't expect us to be talking about him 100% of the time because that's not practical in our, in our, in our world. We live in a physical world and most of us need to make money each, each week to survive and that takes time away from what we'd like to do. But you know, I've heard many people say, I just don't have time to do something. And my, my oldest son and I had this conversation. I'm going, if you don't make time for, to do something for God, you'll have reasons not to for the rest of your life. And I've had this discussion with others, but he's the one I've had it with most recently. You know, and it really is true. What I want to do, I will make time to do. If somebody is into football and somebody goes i've got super bowl tickets for you and you may be the busiest person in the world but if you're really into football you will find a way to go to the football game the the super bowl uh because the tickets were offered to you for free usually Uh, if you're into baseball you know the world series or whatever it might be the the hockey the stanley cup you know whatever it is if you're really into it no matter how busy or how, you know, how tough it would be, if you're really, really into it, you'd find a way to make it happen. We buy the stuff we want that we really think are important, and we spend time with what we think is really important. You look at people who are, are smoking or drinking, and they'll tell you they have no money until it, until it comes time to have to buy that pack of cigarettes or the case of beer or whatever it is, and all of a sudden, they've got money from someplace. Okay, They have no money for anything else, but when it comes time to... I have to have this, they'll find the money. Uh, somebody will tell you well, I have no time to do this and you ask them, well what did you do last night? Well, I sat down to relax and I watched uh, four hours of TV. Uh, and you couldn't have done anything other than the four hours of, well no, you know I needed to relax. Uh-huh. So you're relaxing takes more precedence, you know. But you know, we make time for what we think is important at the time we do it. We spend money on what we think is important to do it. When somebody says, I cannot come to church because I just don't have time, I don't press them too hard, but I'm thinking, okay, how much time did you watch TV? How much time did you you know do this? How much time did you put into your hobby? How much did you time you know put into whatever it might be? Because we will make time for what's important. What is at the heart of who we are? And this is what it says. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Well, whatever you do and you think is important, you usually come away somewhat refreshed because you enjoy doing it. So the question is, if you say, I don't have time for God, then you're really saying you don't enjoy God enough to want to spend that time with him. So whether it's sports or hobbies or gardening or whatever it might be, we, we will make time for whatever we think is important enough to make that time for. We will spend money on whatever we think is important to spend money for. And this is why this verse is precious to me. O oh my soul, bless the Lord. My innermost being, bless the, bless the Lord. While I live, I will praise the Lord. While I sing praises, I will sing praises unto my God, While I have any being. So in other words, while I'm alive, I'm going to praise God. Now the good news for us is as Christians, once we die in the the flesh, we still get to spend time because we're alive still. We're going to be alive for eternity and we get to sing praises to God and worship God for eternity. He says, while I live, I will praise. I will boast in the Lord. I will sing praises unto my God while i have any being and i love this the idea of i am going to serve god i want to lift him up and this is one of those things i love i I love to just oftentimes sing sometimes when i'm in my little office there at the prison i'll be singing while i'm doing something you know because i'm off to the end all by myself so nobody's bothered and it wouldn't bother me if they were bothered but but uh you know do we worship god do we sing to him do we pray to him or is it just on special occasions and special times when I'm in church, I can put the show on. I'm praising God, or do I praise God, often, without no reason? Uh, when we took the last trip on car across country with the the kids to go see my sons get married and being part of that, my daughter goes, "Can we just sing songs?" You know, because <laughs> we hadn't sung songs in the car and all in quite a while. So we turned the radio off, we turned the CD off, and we just. Sang lots of Bible songs and and hymns and anything we could think of that we could remember the the words to, we sang. But, you know, the key to this whole thing is, do we spend time with God just worshiping him? And this is something that's pretty serious. Is he enough and important enough for me to just say, God, I want to worship you. I just want to get into your word. I want to just sing. I I want to come before your courts, God and lift you up. And this is something that we don't play at. I mean, we can make it look like we do by getting in front of people, but do we just sing to God? Do we just praise praise to God? There's one of the reasons I love little choruses because there's something you can sing as you're walking. I do them quite frequently as I'm walking across the yard at the prison to go to my office. I'll be just singing quietly, not at the top of my lungs, but just quietly singing a chorus, getting my mind on God. Uh, you know, a, a scripture song or something, or just a quick quick chorus and just, God, thank you. And just worshiping him as I'm taking the, the minute and a half, two minute walk across the yard. Uh, you know, talking to different inmates, whatever it might be, but you know, just lifting up God as I cross the yard. And you know, this is important. Do we praise him with our whole being? Or do we just kind of relegate him to certain time slots? And a lot of Christians do this. They relegate to God. I've got, you know, on Sunday morning, you're my God. But Sunday afternoon, I'm going to watch football and, or baseball or whatever sport is going to be. And, you know, God, you just kind of stay in the corner on, when, I'm, when I'm in this mood. And then, OK, God, I'll go to church that night if the football game's over in time. I'll, I'll go to church. And Monday morning, God, no, this is work, God. You, you, you stay back at home, God. I'm at, I'm at work now. you know. Uh, and then after work, it's OK, God, you know, this is family time. Uh, you know, you kind of stay out of my family. That's not what God wants. He wants to be part of everything we do. And here you know, the psalmist is saying, praise God. While I'm alive, I'm going to praise God. While there's being in my life, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to raise him up. And you know, we tend to have this idea of compartmentizing God. And God says, I'm your God 24-7. You know. And this is something that's a shocker for a lot of people that I talk to. That you think God wants to be part of every part of your day. Yes, God wants to be part of every part of your life. Every part of your life, God wants to be part of. God is our God, twenty-four-seven. Twenty-four-seven, no. No putting him in the corner sometime because, uh, you know, and there's a lot of people They go to work, you know, God, I, you know I'm a salesman, God. That means i got to lie and, and bend the truth. So, and God's saying, nope, you're, you're, you need to be telling the truth because you're one of my servants. And so we, we want to do this, and sometimes we think we have to, and yet God's saying, no, I'm, I'm yours all the time. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes nor the, sons, the son of man in whom there is no help. In other words, don't put your confidence in people. And this is something that is very important and I've shared with numbers of people, even this last week for some reason has been coming up. We do not put our confidence in people. It must be in God. Because if I put my confidence in people, I am going to be disappointed. Every single time if I have my confidence in a person, I'm gonna be disappointed. And if I put my confidence in myself, I'm gonna be disappointed. Okay, because I can't make everything happen the way I want. My only great confidence is going to come from God. And God will always make it work out in the end. It may not seem like it at times, but he will make it work out by the end. Verse uh, 3, 146. And so we see God saying, trust me, not man. And... Very important that we always look at this. That man's going to do, 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 uh, disappoint us. Verse 4 says, His breath goes forth. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. In other words, men die. <laughs> very poetic way to say they die. All right? His breath goes forth. His his last spirit comes out. He is buried. And his thoughts stop stop occurring. Very poetic way to say men die. Okay, Uh, There's just so much that can happen. And even if you get somebody who's very faithful, eventually you're going to lose that individual because they're human. And this happens in families with the patriarch. Everybody trusts the patriarch if it's a good family. And the father eventually dies. And the rock of the family is gone. All right. That happens. And all of a sudden, people struggle. And this is that whole idea. If you trust in people, they're gonna, <laughs> best case is, they're gonna die on you at some point and be taken away from you. And secondarily, they're just not trustworthy. They're not gonna, they can't make things happen because we're human beings. There's only so much control of the future that any human can have, which is none. We don't know when they're going to die. We don't, know what's, we don't know what the future is going to bring. And so we are in this position where we say, don't trust in that person. And if they're following human logic and human understanding, they're really bad examples. But even if they're being spiritual, they're going to, they can only go so far with their advice and their counsel before something happens that they did not expect and something happens that they were not conscious of. Eventually will disappoint us. And this is what he's saying. And he says, in the best case, they're going to die. You know, in that poetic language. Verse 5, though, says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Happy, blessed uh, is he that has God for his help. God is our helper. He wants to be able to give us the things we need. And again we've talked about this several times It doesn't mean he's going to give us everything it doesn't mean he's going to even make make life super simple for us uh, jesus said they hated me they're going to hate you if you're his follower we should expect hard times by following god but it says whose hope is in the lord whose expect expectation is in god i love trusting in god because it is it said that that's where our blessing is and then, if case I love this because uh, in verse six he goes into let me. If in case you don't know who this God is, let me tell you about him, which made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in therein and keeps truth forever. He's saying the Creator, the one who made everything, and I love the fact that it goes in here and shows that he created everything because we look at our we look at the world we look at the world around us and we say it is so well designed it cannot have happened by accident our scientists are trying to tell us it happened by accident but there is no way that all these pieces happened by accident there's no way that dna happened by accident there's no way any of the stuff mathematically could have been possible there's no way scientifically it could have happened because life does not start from nothing, and and Pasteur showed that. So he says, wash your hands, doctors, so you don't infect the bodies, because diseases don't just pop into existence from the air. Okay, now they can be airborne and all that, but in theory, if we wash our hands and you know clean up the environment, we pretty much stop infections, and so we know that life just doesn't pop up out of nothing, and yet. That's exactly what the evolutionists try to tell us. You know, there was this pool of chemicals and one day life just started in it. You know, and it's like, "Okay, you know that's not true. Why do you believe it?" Well, because we're here and it had to have happened is their statement. <laughs> we're here so it had to have happened. We know that it can't happen, but it but we're here and and we don't believe that God created it, so therefore it had to have happened. And you know, their logic does not hold up when it's analyzed. And The whole thing about this is this psalmist is telling us he's telling us exactly who God is the creator of everything and he says he keeps truth he guards truth the great thing about following God is that he gives us truth and his truth works it works out for us and continues to help us go forward And I love the fact that we can trust God's word. And we've gone over sometimes when we read a section of the Bible and it's just like reading today's newspaper. You know, God is there. He's given us his truth. And there's, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. What's going on today has always happened. Now, yes, the technology behind it's a little different. But even in the past, there was all kinds of technological advancements, not near like what we have today. But, you know. Technology has come and gone over the years, too. Electricity, batteries, all of that stuff has gone forward and, and checked out what was going on. God gives us truth. He teaches us in the word. And, you know, when I hear people say, well, how can you believe that old, that old book? It's so irrelevant. You know, how can... And I'm going, have you even read the Bible? And they haven't. Have you ever read the book? Have you ever looked at what it says in there to know the truth that is in the Bible? And, you know, it's really funny when you talk to college students because they'll talk to you about all the things that they've heard. You know, all the things. Well, the Bible is full of contradictions and I've told you the best thing to do is say, give me one. Well, you know, I've been told this. No, 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 don't tell me what you have heard. Tell me, show me a contradiction in the Bible so we can deal with it. You know and they're supposed to be educated usually it's educated people that will tell you this kind of stuff and you know the point is that when most people criticize the Bible they have never read the Bible they just are talking about what people have told them and you look at this and you're going well look at all the political intrigue it's all through the Bible you read the book of Judges and and first second Samuel first second Chronicles first second Kings and you see the political intrigue that's still going on today uh, nothing nothing new you see the people that are having affairs with everybody you know people all through the Bible and it's not saying it was good it's just saying it's happened but you know all of this stuff has been going on forever and we read the Bible and say, Why, what is your problem with the Bible? Why can't you believe the Bible? Look at this. You know, this story, this story, this event. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. What has been going on is, has, has always gone on and will go on until, until the God destroys the heavens and earth and creates a new heaven and a new earth. Even in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be things going on. Yeah, there won't be political intrigue because the, the, the master, the best king is running it. But there will there'll still be these problems going on. There will still be these issues going on. There will still be things that are happening. And, but, you know, God keeps or guards his truth forever. And this is something that's very important. We were talking about it this afternoon. God does not need us to defend him. He is very good at defending himself. Now, he allows us to be part of his defense but, you know, we don't have to get all bent out of shape trying to defend God. He defends himself very well. He's only had about 6,000 years of practice in our lifetimes to defend himself. And he doesn't need us doing it. He allows us to be able to help him out at times. But if we're going to get angry and upset about it, he'll say, just back off. I, I can defend myself. If you're going to get angry, I can defend myself. And then it says in verse 7, the same God that he's talking about, the one who executes judgment for the oppressed, which gives food to the hungry, the Lord looses the prisoners. God protects the oppressed. When we go through hard times, the greatest thing that is for us when we're going through hard times is to let God be my defense. Just back off and say, God, I want to let you deal with this. Because, you know, the hardest thing about defending yourself is every time you defend yourself, people start looking and they have the idea of, well, they're defending themselves. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. They cause the smoke, but then they blame you for the, for the smoke because you're defending yourself against their charges. And a lot of times it's just easier to shut up and let God defend and let God be the one that, that brings out the truth. And, you know, it's hard sometimes to do Because you're going, God, my reputation's being trashed. Your reputation's being trashed. My testimony's being trashed. And God says, I'm your defense. I'm your defender. I will take care of you. And that's what's important as we think about, God, you are the one who defends. God, you are going to stand up for the oppressed. And he does. Bible's full of him standing up for the oppressed. And it says, which gives food to the hungry. Now, and we talked about this a little bit this morning. God makes sure that we have our needed food. Maybe not as much food as we would like to have. Maybe not as much as we want. But he's going to make sure we have enough to live. And, you know, most of us could get by if we absolutely had to with eating every other day. Now, in America, we consider that starving to death. But, uh, you know, and God says, I'm going to give you enough to, to, to feed you. And it says, he looses the prisoners, he frees the prisoners. And in many cases, this is spiritual prisoners that have bound themselves up spiritually. He looses the prisoners. He gets, sets the captives free. Satan binds up, has bound up this world. And God says, I'm coming along, and I'm going to loose up. I'm going to give you freedom. And here's this whole idea. Who is God? Oh, what a beautiful picture of God. And this is a picture of God. The creator, the master, the one who created the heavens and the seas, who keeps his truth, who executes judgments for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, who, who frees the prisoners. Then if that wasn't enough of a God for you, verse 8, the Lord opened the eyes of the blind. He rises them up that are bowed down, and he loves the righteous. Gives sight to the blind. Now in Jesus' time, that was physical sight, but he also gives sight to the spiritually blind you know where we open up and say God I just don't see what's going on here and I love the story of Elijah's his house is surrounded by the kings of men and his servants all panicked saying you know hey Elijah we're we're surrounded And God says and Elijah says open his eyes so he can see he opens his eyes and the army that surrounded them is surrounded by the angels you know Now, is God usually quite that blunt with our opening of our eyes? Not usually that great. But he opens our eyes to say, this is what I am doing. It may not seem like I'm doing much, but this is what I'm doing. And he opens our eyes and lets us see. And, you know, most importantly, he wants us to walk by faith anyway. The just shall live by faith. It says it four times in the scriptures. The just shall live by faith. And, you know, we've said this, how easy would it be if we opened our eyes and there's great big signs everywhere, go this way, do that. Or there's an angel sitting on our shoulder like the comics, hey, do this, do that. It would be so much easier if that was the way life was for us. God, what should I do? Oh, look, there's a sign right there, go this way. Don't go that way. But he says, live by faith. How do we live by faith? We get into his word. We understand what he wants us to do in general. We understand what he's trying to get us to do. And then we just start living that way. And we take steps. And the greatest thing about living for God is taking those steps of faith and saying, God, I don't know, but I'm going to take this step. God, I'm asking you if this isn't where you want me to go. You stop it. You close the doors. And you know, I love reading how people have stepped out in faith and done things for God. You know, we look at people like Corey Tenboom and their family helping the, helping the Jews during World War II. We look at somebody like Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles and some of the amazing things he did, like transferring Bibles from one car to the other in, in Red Square in the middle, of the middle of Moscow, out in the open. You know, um, you know, and we go, wow, you know, we get a George Mueller praying for the breakfast that isn't there for that the kids are getting ready to eat and as he's praying, it's delivered. You know, and, and he knew nothing about this delivery. You know, we, we think about these things and how people have been blessed by God because they step out in faith. And this is what he's talking about. The blind is opened, and he lifts up those who are, who are bowed down in, in, in heaviness. One of the greatest things about being a Christian is that God takes the load of the cares of this world off us. And he takes them, if we allow him. In Peter, we're told, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Take everything that bothers us and put it on God. Why? Because he loves us. We really do have to start understanding the love of God. But you know, God is the one that defends us. He's the one that lifts us up. He's the one that protects us. He's the one that gives us the words. And when we just give it over to him and we hide in him, and that's the thing I love about Psalms where he keeps going, I'm your strong tower, I'm your buckler, I'm your shield, I'm your your mighty fortress. God is just wanting one thing from us. And it's not the thing most Christians think it is. It's not for me to go out and try the best that I can do. It is to hide in him, listen to what he wants me to do, and step out when he tells me to, because he is leading the way. You know, this is how we live the Christian life. We hide in him and let him direct us. And that, again, doesn't mean we're just going to sit around and do nothing. Well, God, I'm waiting for you to dump my income on my lap. I'm not going to go out and get a job. I'm just waiting for you to give me my income. and you know. No. You know, he will give us great opportunities. When I was living by faith with just this job, there were so many times when a call would come in and say, I have this computer job, or I need this cooked up, or I need this done, or I need this done. And next thing I know, I had the money to pay the bills. Why? Not because I sat on my bed and got dumped money on me. He gave me opportunities to get out and do something. He, gave me, he gives us opportunities to share him with other people. And this is what it comes down to. He opens the eyes. And why? Because this verse, last part of verse 8, he loves the righteous. And you know, that's how God sees us. When we're in Christ, he sees us as righteous. We are sinners. We come to Jesus Christ and we accept him as our Lord and Savior. He takes off the filthy rags of our, our sin and shame and he puts on his righteousness on it. And when God looks at us, he sees righteous. What a blessing that God sees us as righteous. And he loves righteousness. And who's the only one that's righteous? It's Jesus Christ. And when he looks at us, he says, oh, there's all my beautiful children, my righteous, perfect children. They all look exactly the same because we're clothed in Jesus Christ, as far as God's concerned. You know, now, do we know we're not perfect? Yes, we know we're not perfect. But you know, if we start seeing ourselves more the way God sees us, What a difference that's going to make. Satan comes knocking on your door and says, you're just a filthy, rotten sinner. You know what, Satan? You're absolutely right. But I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and God sees me as perfect. And I'm going to heaven because of that righteousness, and you have no hope. How much power does Satan lose when we can really start to understand who I am in Christ because of the finished work of Christ on the cross? I go, he paid the debt so that I could be seen as perfect by God. And if I'm perfect, he's, that's how he's going to treat me. He's going to treat me as if I am perfect, even though I know that I'm not in reality perfect. He sees me for who I will be, not for who I am. God has truth. The problem is we oftentimes will believe the facts that Satan sends to us. You know, you are a wild and awful sinner. You sinned so much just today, not even counting yesterday and the day before. You are an awful, miserable sinner. Lots of facts. And Jesus says, I've got truth for you. You are clothed in me. You are righteous. You are seen as perfect by the Father. Truth and fact. We need to be able to separate these two ideas sometimes. It is true that I am a rotten, terrible sinner. But... The fact is, the, the, it is a fact that I'm a terrible, awful sinner. The truth is, I'm in Christ and I'm perfect. Okay, that's the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth, the life and the way. And what he says is true. Why? Because he knows what's going to happen. He knows what I'm going to be when I in this, in this life. And he says, now I'm glorifying you and you are going to be who I said you are. You know, the very power of this. Jesus knows things we don't know because he knows the beginning from the end. He already knows what we're going to be because he's there with us at the end. He knows what he he is going to do for us. When we die, he is going to give us our glorified body that is perfect. And the Father sees us as we will be. And that's so precious. When Jesus, before the foundation of the world, said, yes, Father, I will be sacrificed for these people, as far as the Father was concerned, it was done. He was the sacrificed lamb at the moment he said he would do it. Why? Because he said he would do it. And if he said he would do it because he is God, he would do it. Adam and Eve were saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Abel was saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Noah was saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Abraham was saved because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because it, even though it had not happened, God said, my son said it will happen, therefore it has already happened before it did happen. We can't understand that because we can't get ourselves out of this mindset of the temporal that we live in. So it's okay. It's okay and Abel and... Uh, maybe, not. maybe not Cain. Cain's a different case because we don't know where Cain, what Cain did. But Adam and Eve were saved. Probably. They taught their kids how to follow God. Well, I, didn't know so. I, expect, I expect to see Adam and Eve in heaven. I don't expect to see Cain in heaven. I do expect to see Adam and Eve. I do expect to see Abel. You you said. Nothing in the Bible says that he was ever repentant so I doubt that he repented. So I would be surprised to see Cain in heaven. But Everybody who is going to be in heaven is because they get saved because of what Jesus did in his sacrifice. Even if it was before he was born, because God had already said, you said yes, it's done. It is done. Just as we can know there is going to be a millennial kingdom because God said there will be a millennial kingdom okay we know there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period why because God said that there's going to be and because he said there will be there will be we know at the end of the millennial kingdom that this whole in physical environment that we know will be destroyed and he will start a new heaven and new earth and as far as he's done as far as God's concerned it is already done Okay, it is done because he is eternal and he encompasses everything. So as far as he's concerned, it is already done. He's already out there. He's already experiencing us finished, glorified, perfect, which is why when he says we're perfect, he means we're perfect because he sees us where we're going to be after he's done glorifying us. Even though we're going through a long temporal time of, of sanctification, he goes, I know what you're going to be. I'm already in fellowship with you as a perfect being while you're being sanctified today. The omnipresence of God is so much bigger than we as human beings understand it. God is in all time at the same time. He is outside of time. He is because He is. is Yes. In God's perspective it's done. He's there because he encompasses time he's already in the millennial kingdom he's already in the new new heaven and earth because he encompasses everything this is why i say no matter how big you think god is you're way too small no matter how strong you think god is you're way too weak no matter how omnipresent you think he is and i got a big omnipresent and i'm still not big enough because somehow there's something beyond what i can comprehend because he is eternal you know So whatever we think about God as human beings, we are too small in our thoughts because it is so much more. Why can he say we're perfect? Because he already knows that we are because of where he is with us. Okay? And I've said this before. He's with Adam and Eve right at this moment that we're talking at creation. He's with us. He's already in the tribulation period. He's already at the end of the millennial kingdom and he's already in the new heaven and new earth. And he knows what's happening and nothing surprises him because he is everywhere at the same time and knows exactly where each step leads. And he already knows what he's going to do with us. And so he treats us as what we will be because he knows what we will be. And he treats us today by what we will be. (laughs) it's an amazing thought process. How can he let us do the things that we do because he knows he knows what we're capable of and he knows what we're capable of and we don't even know what we're capable of. You know, when he told Abraham to go after Isaac on the altar and he he saved Isaac at the last moment, he goes, he said, now I know, but what he was really saying, now you know what you really, what you are. I already knew what you were going to do, but now you know. You know that you have the ability to follow me. God puts us into test, not so that he'll find out what we know. He already knows what we know. He wants us to know. You thought you knew this material, and you just blew it big time. Get get busy, study some more. You thought you knew this, and now you proved you did know it. You know, and he puts us through those tests not so he can say, "Okay, what, what what's your grade when you get done?" Oh, you only got a B. You were supposed to get an A. You know, God, God's not saying that. He already knew how well we were going to do on that test. We're the one that enters in the test, saying, "I would never not love this person." As we as we walk into the, and get smacked upside the head and with the with the reality and failed the test terribly, you know, and go, "Oh, I guess I'm not as loving to that person as I thought I'd be," you know. Oh God, I'm not I'm not as you know I'm not as forgiving as I thought. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And God saying, "Well, now you know. Now let's, let's get working on it. Let's let's take you to the next. Let's let's get you ready for the next test coming your way." Our tests are not for God to figure out who we are. It's for us to know who we are. Because I can tell you, when I fail a test, I feel really bad most of the time. How in the world could I have failed that? God, I thought I had that lesson down so pat, and now look at this. I totally messed it up. And God's saying, okay, let's prepare for the next one. Let's prepare for the next one. You know, the truth project, do you really believe that what you believe is really real and that's all our tests are all about? Do I truly believe it? And the test is what proves it. When I fail, what am I saying? God, I really didn't believe. When I pass, God, I believed it, yes, and you just proved it to me that I believed it. And God says, okay, don't get too cocky, we got another test coming your way. It'll be a little harder. Your next test is gonna be a little harder. Oh, thank you, God. kind of glory in this one, just a little bit. <laughs> and not usually. <laughs> and the next test comes along and says, OK, you got a little more work yet, a little more work. And you know, this is what he says. He loves the righteous. Verse 9, the Lord preserves strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widows. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. The Lord preserves. He guards the strangers, aliens, literally those who have no right in the land. And that's what an alien is. As much as we, the, our current government's trying to play these games, you know, the, uh, especially the liberals, that they don't want to have the term aliens, that there's nobody that's not allowed. No, what an alien literally means is somebody that has no rights. Okay? And for us in this world as Christians, we have no rights in this world that's owned by Satan right now because we are aliens to this world. They don't have any rights in, in the heaven. And they won't have the rights in the millennial kingdom when Jesus is reigning because they're not part of his kingdom. We have no rights in this kingdom because we are alien to this kingdom. We are pilgrims traveling through this world to get to the world that's ours. We're just strangers here. And this is what's been said so many times. If we feel at home in this world, there's something wrong because this is not home there's a great story about a missionary couple that came traveling across the ocean. And one of the presidents, I think it was Roosevelt, was on the, on, the, on the boat with them. And they come into the harbor, and there's this great big celebration for the president. And the husband's getting in tears. He goes, there's no one here to welcome us home. And his wife just said, we're not home yet. You know, we're, we came to what you think of as home being you know, coming off the mission field, but we're not home. There's going to be a celebration in heaven when a Christian comes home for whatever it is that we've done what little or much we've done and we'll have our celebration in heaven when we get to go home but this is not our world this is not our home and we are going to always feel out of place in this world hopefully if I'm following God I should feel out of place in this world because this world is not my home and my home is heaven and if I'm feeling at home in this world there's a problem There is nothing about this world that I'm excited about. You know, there's things I enjoy. But, you know, I never really truly feel at home. I can't watch TV. I can't watch most of the movies. I can't read most of the magazines. Most everything is anti-God and against God. And even what is supposedly against God doesn't always bring all that great blessing because you look at it and say, wow, this is all tainted. God is saying there's a special blessing. He goes, he preserves the strangers. He relieves or um, restores the orphans and the widows. And these are, especially in that day, they were the the ones that were weak. They were the ones that didn't have anything. Uh, It was so male-oriented that women did not make a lot of money. Now, in Israel, they had a lot of provisions for the, the orphans and the widows. They could glean the fields. they The people were to give alms. It was part of their, their job to give alms and money to the poor. They were to go out and, and pick the grain up off the corners of the fields. God made provisions for them, but he says, God protects the widows and the orphans. And that is what he does. He's going to make sure their needs are met. He is the father to the fatherless. He is the husband to the, to the widow. And, you know, this testimonies over and over from people who said, I finally got to that. I finally understood that God was my father, that God was my my husband, that he was going to take care of me, and he meets these needs. But he says, But the way of the wicked he turns upside down or he makes crooked. He he he, he perverts it. He's you know, there's all kinds of different things that he that he does to it. But you know, God makes life difficult for the unrighteous and they may think they're getting away with it at least outwardly they make it look that way but we've talked so many times about this you know what happens to these people who strike it rich whatever it is as athletics or or singer or or actor actresses they are usually so empty and you know they'll put on a good front I've got everything I'm happy they'll smile when they're in public and then they you know, uh, drink their blues away and end up drunk or they shoot up so many drugs that they they lose days or they literally just blow their heads off because they're just, or cut their wrist because they're so lonely. God makes life difficult for the lost world. He puts obstacles in their way because he wants them to turn to him. And he knows they're always going to be empty. You can't make enough money to be totally happy. You can't have enough fame to be totally happy. You can't can't do anything to be totally happy without God because, as Pascal said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us. And only an infinite God can fill an infinite emptiness. And nothing that we try to put in that infinite emptiness is going to satisfy because it needs an infinite God to satisfy. When God's there, we can be satisfied. Now, we can still struggle and cry and complain and not be satisfied with God if we want. But, you know, I love it when you talk to people and they give you their testimony. I didn't think it was going to work, but I asked God to come into my life, and he did. You know, and they'll say, I, and sometimes I didn't really feel it, but something changed. I was listening to Greg Glory's testimony on, on his tape, and he's going... You now I asked God in my head, nothing really changed. He goes, and I just went out on my party that night with my friends, and we were camping. He goes, I got my drugs out, and I was all set to use it, and then I heard this voice say, you don't need those anymore. Okay? You want to talk about a changed life instantly. And he says, okay, I'm going to throw them away. I better, you better be right, whatever voice is talking. You know? <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, I've heard that story so many times from people that all of a sudden something changed in their life. And I'm really, I am adamantly convinced that if something doesn't change in your life when you get saved, you didn't get saved. Something needed to have changed. Maybe not huge and dramatic, but something. In his case, nothing seemed to change until he got ready to use his drugs and it's like, I don't need these anymore. I got saved and my temper, the worst part of my temper was taken away overnight. You know, what changed in your life when you came to Christ? What was what changed for you? Beyond my temper, God gave me a love for his word. And I just wanted to devour his word. Something changed. Something changed in my life, and, and it's been incremental changes over the years since. But we need to be looking at this. What has God changed in our life? When, he became, when you became his child, what changed? are you going to be perfect overnight? Absolutely not. But there should be something that you can say, ha, here it is. Uh, I am different in this area, and God is the one that did it. It wasn't me doing it. God changed me in some area. Some people have dramatic changes. And sometimes I don't think that's a good thing if they have a dramatic change, because I've also seen that those people are very impatient with those that God works slowly with. Because their attitude, well, God did all this for me. What's wrong with you? Uh, God's working with me slower you know, I, maybe I'm a little more hard-headed than you I don't know what it is but you know be patient because God is and I've noticed that from many people who have dramatic huge changes in their life they tend to be impatient with those that don't have that same same aspect in their life but you know God turns the wicked upside down and he helps the righteous because he loves us he wants to do it And then the last verse The Lord shall reign forever. Even your God, O Zion, unto all generations, praise you, the Lord. The Lord shall reign forever. Okay? He has always reigned forever. He reigned before the creation of the earth, whatever was out there to reign over, that he created before and whatever he's going to create after he's going to reign over. He is in charge of everything. If there's multiple dimensions out there that are different worlds, he's in charge of those. You know, our God is so much bigger than anything we can pro- process, and he is in charge of it all. Which is why I keep making comments so often. You know, Many people will say, well, I'm only going to give the big problems over to God. There's no big problem to God. We have the quote from Elizabeth Elliot, who said, many people... Well, say they trust God for the big things. And if you believe that, that God can take care of the big things, you must believe he can take care of the little things. That is for those of us who believe in, in big and little problems. God doesn't have any big and little problems. We do. And our biggest problem, let's say, let's say there really is a big problem to this world and there's somebody in charge of that big problem. And there, there really is a huge problem. The, the whole world is going to change by, their, by the decision they're going to make. God says, that's not a very big problem. I run the entire universe. Your little problem changing your, your world is not that big a deal. I'm running the whole universe. I'll, just ta- I'll help you with that. But our God reigns forever. He always has reigned over whatever was before the earth. He always will reign with the new heaven and the new earth and whatever else is out there. You know, may, I'm very willing to say there's other things out there. It's not a problem to me. The only thing I know is my God's so big that He He's in control of all those as well, whatever there might be out there, whatever dimensions, whatever universes, because physics is telling you that those universes are touching each other. I have no problem with that. God's in charge of those too, and has no problem being in control of all of those, whatever dimensions are out there. He's in charge of all the dimensions, because He is God over everything, and He is greater than all. You know, God is so much bigger than we think He is. And he is in control of whatever might be out there. And I have no problem with all of that. I'll deal with what he says in our world because that's all I care about is our world as far as that goes. And he tells us what he wants us to know about our world in his word. And that's what I want to care. When somebody asks me, well, what did God do before the creation, before he created the heavens and the earth? I don't know. Whatever he wanted to do. The Bible doesn't tell us much about that time. It tells us that Satan and Lucifer fell. Now, I don't know if that was before he created it or right at the beginning of the creation or what, but Lucifer fell and took a third of the angels. I personally think it was before the creation of the world. That doesn't matter. If that's, that would be what little I know about before, what he did before. He dealt, with the, he dealt with Lucifer. Once we die, we go to heaven or hell, we're glorified or not glorified for eternity, and we are not capable of sinning after, after we die. Because we are now made perfect. And I think the angels had some form of existence. Was it a physical existence? Was it just spirits? I won't get into all of that. But I believe they had some kind of existence where they chose to obey God or not to obey God. And one third chose not to obey God. But here we say he's going to reign forever. Your God, O Zion, O Jerusalem, O Israel, basically, unto all generations, praise You the Lord. Lift up. Boast in the Lord. You know, we need to just practice. We need to really start practicing this. Boasting in God. You know, and you know, very important, you know, we have our prayer list and we put the word acts in there. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We need to spend a lot more time adoring God than we do in most cases. I don't care how much you're adoring God, you're probably still not doing it enough. We need to spend time just adoring God. God, you are so wonderful. You, you died for me, God. I just, I just can't believe you died for me so that I can go to heaven. You provide my needs for me. You gave me a job. You've done this for me. You've done that for me. God, you are just so wonderful. We, none of us, boast in God enough, praise God enough, give him enough adoration. No matter how much you do, we can't do enough. You know, we could do it 24-7, and it still wouldn't be enough. You know, And we couldn't even do that because we need to sleep. But, you know, you get what I'm saying. Even if we did it every minute, every second of every day, we can't adore God enough for everything he's done for us. And we need to raise him up and boast in him and glorify him and say, God, you are so wonderful. And I love to hear people lifting up God. I love to hear testimonies. I love to hear how people got saved. Uh, That's the greatest thing that I can think of is just tell me about how you got saved. I love to hear those stories. There's one of the hymns we sing. uh, I love to tell the story, and one of the lines in "Those who know it know it best, love to hear it most." Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to hear. I want to hear how people get saved. I love to hear. Yeah, you know, I was just going down the road the wrong way, and then all of a sudden, God got hold of me, and this is what He did to get hold, get hold of me, and now my life has changed. I am following God, and he brought me into this U-turn, and now I'm walking toward God and listen to what God has done since then. You know, one of the reasons I love the Christian biographies is just for that. They always start the same way. I was doing something wrong. Whatever that something wrong, that something wrong is going to be different, and all of a sudden, God got hold of me. God got hold of me. And I share it so often. I love it. I got saved at 10 years old. <coughs> I was looking for God I was looking for God going to church and then that Sunday morning in junior church I recognized I was a sinner and I needed God and I got saved and that God changed me and you know that change had a dramatic impart, impact in my life and I love to hear how God changes people some people at a very young age some people at a very older a much older age but God gets hold of them, and he changes them, and he deserves all the praise when those things happen. And it's great when you get to share the gospel with people and see that change with them. When they say that prayer and you just see the burden fall off of them, the light come on in their eyes as they, as God indwells them and fills their need. Let's close in prayer, and then we can talk. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, teach us to praise you. Teach us to lift you up in all circumstances. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.